This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 25 Law and Politics in the New Testament Quote, if no divine law is recognized above the law of the state, then the law of man has become absolute in men's eyes. There is then no logical barrier to totalitarianism. Recent years have brought a renewed concern among evangelical and reformed Christians for a distinctively Christian attitude and approach to all areas of life and behavior, including socio-political ethics. So we have asked what the standard of that distinctive perspective would be for a Bible-believing Christian. In the Old Testament, it is evident that God's chosen people, Israel, were to govern their political activity according to the revealed law of God, which was given through Moses and expounded by the prophets. Upon examination, it turned out that even the Gentile nations around Israel were held accountable by God for obedience to His law in the Old Testament era. God's law touched on all the aspects of life, including criminal justice, and that law was not presented by the lawgiver as a racist or tribal standard of right and wrong. It was God's universal and eternal standard of righteousness for human affairs. In a sense, we have already offered an implicit answer to our question about the standard for a distinctive Christian outlook on political ethics. God has spoken to issues of social justice and public policy toward crime in his law. There is a divine point of view on politics, and it has been expressed in the law of the Old Testament. Two things are to be said about that law. First, it continues to be the general standard of ethical conduct today according to the scripture, as we have seen many times over in previous chapters. Second, Old Testament law did not have a moral validity restricted to the Jewish race. It has intended to be the standard of conduct outside the redeemed community as well as within it. Consequently, if the Old Testament law of God expresses, among other things, God's view on political morality, and if that law has universal and abiding validity, we should expect that the New Testament perspective on law and politics would likewise affirm the standard of God's law for public policy. Differences in time and locality, differences in dispensation and race, differences in culture and redemptive status do not demand or imply differences in moral standards. We would thus expect that the distinctive Christian approach to political ethics would be defined by the entire Word of God, inclusive of the law of God, revealed through Moses and expounded by the prophets in the Old Testament. When we turn to study the New Testament writings themselves on this question, this is precisely what we find to be the case. There is definite continuity between the political ethics of the New Testament and the political ethics of the Old Testament. There is complete harmony between what Paul says about the state, for instance in Romans 13, and what we found to be taught in the Old Testament, namely, 1. As appointed by God, rulers are not to be resisted. 2. Bearing religious titles, rulers are avengers of divine wrath. And 3. So rulers must deter evil by ruling according to God's law. These very points, made by the Old Testament with respect to Jewish and Gentile, redeemed and non-redeemed, magistrates both, are clearly expressed by Paul in Romans 13, verses 1-6. through 6. They are premises upon which a distinctive Christian attitude toward public justice can and ought to be formulated. Romans 13. 
If the three points laid out above are each taken seriously, then perhaps we can avoid falling into the unfortunate excesses of two conflicting interpretive approaches to the teaching of Romans 13 about the state. On the one hand, we have Bible interpreters who contend that Romans 13 should be read descriptively, thus laying nearly exclusive stress upon Paul's practical exhortation to Christians. That is, when Paul says that the civil magistrate, quote, is a minister of God and avenger of wrath to evildoers, end quote, in verse 4, some interpreters take him to be giving an actual description of all earthly rulers in their real character and function. All statesmen would then be described as God's ministers who avenge wrath on the evil element of society, regardless of the actual quality and conduct of the particular ruler one may have in mind. Even Hitler and Idi Amin would be described as genuine ministers of God. In that case, Paul's practical thrust in Romans 13 would simply be to instruct believers that they must submit obediently to whatever magistrate God has placed over them in society, with the proviso, of course, that they cannot obey men when human rulers order them to disobey God, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. On the other hand, we have Bible interpreters who argue that Romans 13 should be read prescriptively, thus emphasizing that Paul was given the moral standard for civil magistrates and thereby indicating which rulers were to be given submissive obedience by the Christian. That is, when Paul says that the magistrate is a minister of God, an avenger of wrath to evildoers, in verse 4, some interpreters see him as laying down a moral prescription for civil rulers, telling them what they ought to be. Magistrates are to be ministers of God who avenge wrath on evildoers. Consequently, the prescriptive approach to Romans 13 does not stress practical submission on the part of the believer. It rather stands in evaluative judgment over all magistrates, showing the Christian which ones are deserving of their submission and obedience. Both of these interpretations of Romans 13 have tended toward practical consequences which are clearly unacceptable, given the rest of what Scripture says to Christians about morality and politics. The descriptive view of Romans 13 has led many believers in past history to be indifferent to concrete political wrongs and even to comply passively with the injustices of political tyrants like Hitler. On the other hand, the prescriptive view of Romans 13 has often encouraged a rebellious spirit toward the civil magistrate, leading believers to take lightly the biblical injunctions against revolution or civil disobedience. It can be said in defense of each approach that these practical consequences are in fact abuses of the respective views, abuses that do not take into account other biblical teaching, qualifications made, and the full context. This may be... But if one keeps in mind the Old Testament background to Paul's instruction about the civil magistrate in Romans 13, it is possible to interpret the passage in a way which does justice both to the Christian's need to resist political injustice and to the Christian's obligation to be in submission to the powers that be. When Paul says that the ruling powers are ministers of God who avenge wrath against evildoers, he is explaining what civil magistrates ought to be and simultaneously explaining why believers must maintain a submissive attitude toward their rulers. The three points outlined above demonstrate this dual explanatory role of Paul's teaching by summarizing what the Apostle says in Romans 13. The Christian must not have a rebellious attitude toward the civil magistrate because the magistrate is appointed by God. Appointed for what purpose, however? Appointed to be avengers of divine wrath, in which case magistrates can bear religious titles like minister of God. If this is true, then rulers must honor good citizens and deter evil by punishing the criminal element in society, using the standard of God's law as their guide as to good and evil. This explains why Christians must nearly always be submissive to the civil ruler. 
that ruler is obligated in his public capacity to serve the Christian's Lord, and thus loyalty to the Lord requires loyalty to the king. However, when such service is repudiated by the king, or other ruling authority, and the law of the Lord is violently and persistently transgressed, so that good citizens are terrorized by the ruler and evil men tolerated or exalted, the Christian must not comply with the tyrant's policies, but rather work for reform in the name of the Lord and divine standards of public justice. The fact that God's law is binding on present-day civil magistrates explains both why the Christian should shun rebellious attitudes toward rulers and why Christians may not cooperate with unjust regimes. Absolute submission under any and all circumstances, or absolute independence of the magistrate regarding each and every decision he makes, may be simple and easy positions to understand or follow, but the more complex attitude of general submission for the sake of the Lord but resistance when God's law is outrageously violated is more faithful to scriptural teaching and truer to political realities. It is this balanced approach which Paul presents in Romans 13 and which is summarized in the three points outlined earlier. Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 states what God requires of believers regarding their civil leaders, and it states what God requires of rulers regarding their civil function. Submission to superiors is essential to both statements of duty. The Lord expects his people to submit obediently to their rulers, for the Lord expects those rulers to submit obediently to his law. For conscience' sake, then Christians can submit to their civil authorities, knowing that indirectly they are submitting to the moral order of God himself. 1. As appointed by God, rulers are not to be resisted. Paul begins with the generalization that civil government is a divine institution. Quote, there is no power, authority, but of God. End quote. Romans 13, verse 1. God has actually ordained the powers that be. Obviously, then, supremacy belongs to God and not to the state. Respect for the rulers of the state ought never to reach such proportions that the believer gives the state that unquestioning obedience which should be reserved for God alone. Paramount in Paul's mind is the fact that even if Christians are under orders from the state, the state itself is under orders from God above. Since God has ordained the magistrates who rule in the state, those magistrates have been put not only in authority over others, but also under the authority of God. Magistrates are under moral obligation to, to the prescriptions of the Lord. John Murray observed, quote, The civil magistrate is not only the means decreed in God's providence for the punishment of evildoers, but God's instituted, authorized, and prescribed instrument for the maintenance of order and the punishing of criminals who violate that order. When the civil magistrate, through his agents, executes just judgment upon crime, he is executing not simply God's decorative will, but he is also fulfilling God's prescriptive will. And it would be sinful for him to refrain from so doing." End quote. Since all civil magistrates have no power unless it has been given to them from above, as Christ declared, even while standing before Pilate, John chapter 19, verse 11, they are responsible to reverence and obey Almighty God. When they, as with Herod, accept praise as a God, they come under the terrible wrath of God and can be deposed from power. Quote, Upon a set day Herod arrayed himself in royal apparel and sat upon the throne and made an oration unto them. And the people shouted, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. End quote. Acts chapter 12 verses 21 through 23. 
The proper aim of all ethical conduct is the glory of God. And civil magistrates, being ordained by God to rule, are not exempt from the moral obligation to rule for the glory of God. Those appointed by God will be answerable to God for the kind of rule they render in society. This is nothing else but the doctrine of the Old Testament, whether we consider the rulers of Israel or the rulers of Gentile nations around Israel. Paul's teaching is grounded in the Old Testament. Both in the Old and New Testaments, then, begin their philosophy of state within the supremacy of God, to whom all rulers owe reverence and obedience. Submission and Prayer In that context, Paul goes on to insist that civil rulers, as God's appointees, are not to be given resistance. Quote, The one resisting the authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who oppose will be received to themselves judgment. End quote. Romans chapter 13, verse 2. The Old Testament background of this statement by Paul is the best commentary on the verse. Parallel statements are also found in the New Testament at Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Quote, Put them in mind to be in subjection to rulers. End quote. And 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Quote, be subject to every ordinance of man. End quote. Throughout Scripture, we see that God does not approve of a rebellious, disrespectful, or disobedient spirit concerning those who have been ordained by God as our civil leaders. Honor is to be rendered to whom honor is due. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, And since the Old Testament law stipulated, quote, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people, end quote. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. Paul himself displayed a repentant spirit when he had unwittingly spoken evil of a ruler. Acts 23, verse 5. Old Testament believers were told to pray for their unbelieving Gentile rulers. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Ezra 6, verse 10. When captive in Babylon, they were to seek the peace of Babylon. This would clearly contrast any attitude of resistance. Likewise, in the New Testament, God's people are exhorted to pray for kings and all that are in high places. 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. And Peter writes to Christians in dispersion, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, who faced imminent persecution from the Roman high command. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 12, and chapter 5, verse 13, that they should imitate the godly pattern of peace-seeking as found in Psalm 34, 14. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Over and over again, we find definite continuity between the Old and New Testaments regarding political ethics. Here, that continuity is evident in that saints under both the Old and New Covenants were to respect civil rulers as appointed of God, praying for them, and seeking peace within their societies. God's people have always had the obligation to submit to their magistrates, knowing that those same rulers were ordained as part of God's moral rule over creation. Just because the ruler stands under the authority of God, those who profess allegiance to God must respect the ruler. It is not simply out of pragmatic expediency that a Christian obeys the civil authorities. Quote, not simply because of the wrath, end quote, which they can express against dissenters. Romans 13, verse 5a. He must obey also for the sake of conscience. Romans 13, verse 5b. That is, out of regard for the Lord himself who stands over the civil magistrate, his deputy, the Christian must submit to the ruler, and in doing so, submit to the supreme ruler. Conscience. It should be obvious, despite the short-sightedness of some commentators, that the submission given to civil magistrates must be in the context of the magistrate ministering for God, for this submission is explicitly prescribed by Paul for conscience' sake. 
Paul frequently uses the word conscience, meaning conscience toward God. For example, Acts 23, verse 1, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Quote, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and therefore to do anything out of conscience, or for conscience' sake, is to do it from a sense of obligation to God. End quote. John Murray, Epistle to the Romans, volume 2, page 154. Moreover, Paul always qualified the obedience that must be rendered to men as obedience given for godly ends, obedience given in the context of submitting first and foremost to the moral demands of God himself. Charles Hodge expressed this insight, quote, In like manner, Paul enforces all relative and social duties on religious grounds. Children are to obey their parents because it is right in the sight of God, and servants are to be obedient to their masters as unto Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, 5, and 6. End quote. From a commentary on Romans, page 406. This is made quite clear in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, where we read that we ought to be subject to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Thus believers submit to the civil magistrate for the sake of conscience, which is to say, for the Lord's sake, just because the magistrate is to be submissive to the Lord, seeking his glory and obeying his commands. Conscience cannot permit a rebellious spirit against the Lord's appointed ruler, even as it cannot permit compliance with dictates of the ruler which defy the law of the Lord. Paul's teaching ever places Christ as Lord over all, even as in the first commandment of the Decalogue. The Supremacy of God Therefore, the supremacy of God is a key for correctly understanding the view of the state advanced by Paul in Romans 13 verses 1-7. through Just as taught in the Old Testament, Paul also teaches that believers are under strict obligation to obey the civil magistrate because the Most High God, who is supreme over all, has ordained the rule of the magistrate. Just because the ruler is conceived of as under orders from God who appointed him, the Christian must respect the ruler as a way of showing submission ultimately to God himself. Because God is supreme over all and has given authority to those who exercise rule in society, such civil magistrates are not autonomous agents, free to do as they wish, and answerable to nobody. As deputies of God, they must serve his purposes. When and if they defy the will of God, acting in a sinful and satanic fashion with their brute power, the Christian's conscience before the Lord cannot go along with them. Since the Lord is the supreme judge, the Christian must not resist those who are appointed by God and minister for him. For the same reason, the submission given to rulers by the Christian is qualified by his primary allegiance to the Lord, and by the understanding that submission to the state is for the sake of the Lord, whose will the magistrate ought to pursue. 2. Bearing religious titles, rulers are avengers of divine wrath. The supremacy of God as the preconditioning assumption of Romans 13, verse 1 through 7, comes to expression in the titles assigned to civil rulers by Paul. In Old Testament Israel, statesmen were sometimes designated priests, and even in the Gentile nations around Israel, civil leaders were occasionally called by God, my servant, my shepherd, and my anointed, Christ. This tendency to see the office bearer in the state categorized as a religious official, someone answerable to God Almighty, carries over into the New Testament, once again demonstrating the continuity which exists between the Old and New Testament regarding the powers that be. The idea of a secular state, one which divorces its authority and standards from religious considerations about God and His will, is completely alien to biblical revelation. Indeed, it was alien to much of the ancient world in general. 
All politics is the expression of a moral point of view, which in turn is the outworking of a theological conception of man, the world, and God. The modern world is no different. Its political philosophies are simultaneously political theologies, and its civil rulers are often seen in a religious light, even if religious vocabulary is shunned. Magistrates as Ministers Paul, following the Old Testament, had a religious conception or understanding of the civil magistrate. In Romans 13, he twice categorized the magistrate in society as a minister of God, in verses 4 and 6. If you ask the ordinary Christian today where one can find God's minister, he will point you to the pastor of the local church. He will not think to point you to the city, state, or federal magistrate, for he has capitulated to the mentality of humanistic secularism. Paul had not done so, even though the Roman emperors of his day were far from religious in the commendable sense of that term. Whatever the Caesars may have thought of themselves, Paul thought of them as God's ministers. They were God's prescribed instruments for maintaining order and punishing evildoers according to God's will. In Romans 13.6, Paul used the title of Liturgus to describe the magistrate as God's minister. In the ancient world, this term was used for work done to promote the social order, work performed in the service of the divine state. So Paul used the term with a theological twist. The magistrate is not a minister of the divine state, but rather the state is the minister of God himself. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this term is used to describe the ministry of angels, priests, and prophets, and yet it is likewise used for civil leadership. In Romans 13.4, Paul's term is diakonos, or deacon. Outside the New Testament, the term is used in the title deacon of the city, an office which aimed at the education of good citizenship. Within the New Testament, the term is clearly laden with religious connotation, being applied to the ministry of Christ, Matthew 20.28, of Paul, 1 Timothy 1.12, and of an office within the church, Acts 6, verses 1-6. through 6. Even as there are deacons within the church, Paul declared that there are deacons in the state, namely men who are appointed by God to minister justice in his name. By utilizing these two terms for minister, and by making clear that the ruler is a minister of God, Paul unequivocally teaches the religious character of the civil leader's office. In their perspective of the New Testament, magistrates must be deemed servants of God. His rule is supreme, and their rulers are subordinate. Civil magistrates must be understood to be deputies of God himself, not free and independent despots who can simply do as they please. The Ministry of the Sword What is it that God requires of his ordained ministers in the state? How are they to render service to him? The power of the civil magistrate, in distinction from all of their authorities, the family, the church, the school, etc., is the power of compulsion, the civil magistrate has the right to punish those who do not conform to his laws and punish them with external afflictions, financial fines, bodily pains, labor or scourging, and even death. Other sectors of society may in various ways impose penalties on offenders, but never capital punishment. Parents cannot execute, pastors cannot execute, employers cannot execute, but the civil magistrate's authority clearly stands out as the authority to execute criminals. The power of the magistrate is thus appropriately symbolized in the power of the sword. The most extreme penalty has been placed at the disposal of the civil magistrate, the death penalty. Paul speaks of the magistrate in Romans 13.4 as one who carries the sword. For the meaning of this symbol, one can consult Matthew 26.52, Acts 12.2, Hebrews 11.37, and Revelation 13.10. 
The civil magistrate, according to Paul's teaching, must be seen as a minister of God, one whose activities include the use of the sword in the punishment of offenders. Civil rulers have a God-given ministry of the sword. Is this to say, however, that God throws the blanket of his endorsement over any and all uses of the sword by any and all civil magistrates throughout history? Hardly. There have surely been men who were bloody tyrants, men who abused the power placed in their hands, men who executed capital punishment where it was immoral to do so. Power, arrogance, bribery, jealousy, lust, and prejudice have corrupted the ministry of the sword as it has been expressed in the reign of many a magistrate in the course of history. It is here that we must pay attention to Paul's wording in Romans 13.4. He does not describe any and all uses of the civil sword as the ministry of God in a society, Paul rather distinguishes implicitly between a proper and an improper use of the sword, speaking of bearing the sword in vain. Even as common sense and historical experience would tell us, some magistrates have wielded the sword in a way which is empty of value as far as a ministry for God is concerned. Some have made a futile use of the sword, a use which God never intended it to have. Some have carried the sword in vain. Over against such vain uses of the sword, Paul describes in Romans 13 the magistrate who truly ministers for God. Paul sets before us in Romans 13.4 the model of God's civil minister, one who bears not the sword in vain. The wrath of God. What is the minister of God who bears not the sword in vain to do in the service of God for society, according to Paul? Paul says that he is to be a minister of God, an avenger for wrath to him who works evil. Romans 13.4 Whose wrath is the magistrate to avenge? Surely not his own, for it is just in such self-serving displays of wrath that the sword has been vainly used throughout history. Rather, Paul indicates that the magistrate must avenge the wrath of God. In his paragraph, just preceding the one now under discussion, Paul had exhorted believers to be at peace with men and not to avenge themselves of wrongs suffered. Romans 12.19 said, Avenge not yourselves, beloved, but give place unto the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, says the Lord. Two words stand out here, vengeance and wrath. God himself will avenge wrath upon offenders, so believers need not take such a task into their own hands. But how will God avenge his wrath upon offenders? Romans 13.1-7 answers that natural question. God has ordained a ministry of the sword in society. Those whom he has placed in authority are to be avengers for wrath, that is, avengers of divine wrath for the one who declares that all vengeance belongs to him. The minister of God in the state, the one who bears not the sword in vain, will work to avenge the wrath of God against offenders, against the one who practices evil, Romans 13.4. This is an important part of the description of the civil magistrate. He must see to it that good citizens have nothing to fear from his rule and that the criminal element of society has much to fear. As Paul says, rulers are not a terror to the good work, but to the evil. He is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. The magistrate is under obligation correctly to distinguish virtuous and vicious activities within society. He must reward the one and punish the other. Those who are to undergo his judicial wrath as he bears the sword for God are described as evildoers by Paul in Romans 13.4. If we skip down just six verses to Romans 13.10, we read that love works no evil to one's neighbors. It is precisely these citizens, those who unlovingly transgress the commandments of God which are designed to protect life, liberty, and property of neighbors, who are the evildoers that Paul would have the magistrate punish, even to the point of death where appropriate. 
In Pauline perspective, the civil magistrate today bears religious titles, being called to be an avenger of divine wrath against lawbreakers. Old Testament Concepts The New Testament attitude towards law and politics that is found in Romans 13, 1-7 has turned out to correspond at crucial points with the Old Testament attitude, whether pertaining to Jewish or Gentile magistrates. Paul's underlying assumption was the supremacy of God over all. Taking this for granted, Paul could portray rulers as appointed by God and therefore not to be resisted. Indeed, Paul could go on to repudiate any secularized notion of civil rule by calling those who rule in the state ministers of God appointed by God to avenge his wrath against evildoers who violate his laws. As seen previously, this was precisely the doctrine of the Old Testament. According to it, one can formulate a distinctive Christian view of public justice. Peter summarizes much of the Old and New Testament teaching regarding the civil magistrate when he describes rulers as, quote, through him, God, sent for vengeance on evildoers, end quote. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. Such a description can lead to only one conclusion. 3. Rulers must deter evil by ruling according to God's law. This conclusion has been seen to be the consequence of the Old Testament teaching about civil rulers in Israel, as well as the consequence of the Old Testament perspective on civil rulers outside of Israel. Since civil rulers are appointed by God, since they bear religious titles, since they are sent to be avengers of God's wrath, since they must punish those who are genuine evildoers, the only proper standard for their rule in society, the only proper criterion of public justice, would have to be the law of God. Those who are ordained by God must obey his dictates, not their own. Those who are called ministers of God must live up to such title by serving the will of God. Those who are to avenge God's wrath must be directed by God himself as to what warrants such wrath and how it could be expressed. Those who are to punish evildoers must have a reliable standard by which to judge who is and who is not an evildoer in the eyes of God. So everything points to the obvious conclusion that the civil magistrate, according to Romans 13, 1-7, even as in the Old Testament, is under obligation to obey the stipulations of God's law as they bear on civil leadership and public justice. Within its own literary context, especially Romans 12, 19, and 13, 10, Romans 13, 4 specifically teaches that God's law ought to be the guide for the magistrate who is not to bear his own sword in vain. The law of God defines those who are truly evildoers, and it indicates those upon whom God's wrath must come. What better standard? Those who do not favor taking God's law as the ultimate standard for civil morality and public justice will be forced to substitute some other criterion of good and evil for it. The civil magistrate cannot function without some ethical guidance, without some standard of good and evil. If that standard is not to be the revealed law of God, which we must note was addressed specifically to perennial problems in political morality, then what will it be? In some form or expression, it will have to be the law of man, or men, the standard of self-law or autonomy. And when autonomous laws come to govern a commonwealth, the sword is certainly wielded in vain, for it represents simply the brute force of some, some men's will against the will of other men. Quote, justice, end quote, then indeed becomes a verbal cloak for whatever serves the interest of the strong men in society, whether their strength be that of physical might or the media manipulation. Men will either choose to be governed by God or to be ruled by tyrants, because of the merciful, restraining work of the Holy Spirit in societies, we do not see at every stage in history these stark polarities coming to expression. Most societies will, 
will to some measure strive for conformity to God's law, even when it is officially denounced. However, in principle, the choices are clearly between God's law and man's law, between life and death for society. If no divine law is recognized above the law of the state, then the law of man has become absolute in men's eyes. Then there is no logical barrier to totalitarianism. When God's law is put aside and the politician's law comes to reign in its place, we have the beast described for us by the Apostle John in Revelation 13. Regardless of one's eschatological school of thought and regardless of the overall interpretive structure one has for the book of Revelation, all Bible readers must agree that the beast is the wicked civil magistrate par excellence. He is the very opposite of what Paul described in Romans 13, and thus it comes as no surprise that the book of Revelation commands Christians for resisting the dictates of the beast, even though Romans 13 condemns resistance ordinarily. It will prove insightful to note how John describes the evil magistrate known as the beast. In Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17, we read of the mark of the beast, which must be placed upon one's forehead and hand if he is to engage in commerce in the marketplace. The mark identifies the name or character of the beast himself. In order to have a viable place in society, the beast requires that his name and authority, his law, direct the thinking and behavior, the head and hand, of all citizens. Those familiar with the Old Testament will readily catch John's allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, where God said that his law was to be bound upon the forehead and the hand of his people. The beast is portrayed as taking away God's law and replacing it with his own human law. Staying in harmony with this portrayal, Paul himself describes the beast in 2 Thessalonians 2 as the man of lawlessness. The paradigm of wicked political leader in the Bible, as we have seen, is one who rejects the law of God, as the standard of public justice, and turns to an autonomous standard instead. John makes it quite clear who can be counted upon to resist the beast, the man of lawlessness. Those who resist him are described in Revelation twelve seventeen as those, quote, who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, end quote, and in fourteen twelve as those who, quote, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, end quote. The opposition between the saints and the beasts thus clearly pivots on the law of God. Paul's Political Morality The magistrate who wins the approval of Paul in Romans 13 is the one who is a minister of God for the good, but a terror for those who practice evil. In saying such things, Paul was clearly not departing from his pattern of defining good and evil according to the law of God, Indeed, when Paul stood before the Sanhedrin of the Jews protesting his innocence, he declared that he had done nothing evil, Acts 23.9 and Acts 25.11. Nothing contrary to God's law, or else he would be quite willing to accept the justice of his execution. For Paul, political morality was to be evaluated by the norm of God's revealed law. He did not take a dispensational attitude towards social justice, seeing the standards of the Old Testament laid aside regarding matters of public policy, crime and punishment, in the era of the New Testament. God has one unchanging standard of good and evil, even with respect to political ethics. In terms of God's one standard for political morality, it is not surprising to find that New Testament preaching and writing was anything but apolitical. John the Baptist preached against the unlawfulness of Herod's marriage, Mark 6.18, and Jesus called Herod a vixen, Luke 13.32, a cutting denunciation. John told soldiers of their obligations to God's law, Luke 3.14, and Jesus required that Zacchaeus make restitution for false tax gathering, Luke 19, verses 1-10. through 10. Paul preached contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, Acts 17.7, for which he has banned... <coughs> for which he was banished from Thessalonica. 
In writing back to the church there, he alluded to the city council's antagonism to him as the hindrance of Satan, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. In all of these incidents, we see that the New Testament is not silent about political wrongs and that it weighs these wrongs in the balances of God's revealed law. At the most practical and applied level, the distinctive standard for Christian political morality was found in the well-known commandments of God. Conclusion Recent years have witnessed a revival of Christian political concern. However, that revival has not frequently been associated with a clear-cut, biblical conception of social-political morality. The distinctive standard of Christian politics has been overlooked. By studying the Old Testament regarding Jewish and Gentile magistrates and by studying the New Testament revelation regarding law and politics, we have discovered complete harmony on these three essential points. 1. As appointed by God, rulers are not to be resisted. 2. Bearing religious titles, rulers are avengers of divine wrath. 3. So rulers must deter evil by ruling according to God's law. This provides us with a foundation for Christian involvement in political philosophy and practice. From this platform, a distinctive contribution can be made. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.